Morning, everyone. Uh, could I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 3? It's uh, page 928 in the Bibles in the pews. Two weeks ago, we left uh, Jonah standing on a beach with sand between his toes, sunlight in his face, having just been ejected, or to quote scripture, vomited up from the belly of a whale where he had spent the previous 72 hours of his life. Now, how that happened, I have no idea. Why that happened uh, is a far easier and far more important question to ask and to answer. Jonah had been asked by God to do something, to go and speak into the lives of a particular people group. But for various reasons, and we'll come to the key one in a moment, he decided, sorry God, no chance. And he ran off in the opposite direction. That only led to disaster. But even in the midst of mess, even in spite of Jonah's disobedience, or maybe even because of Jonah's disobedience, God was still able to rescue and transform lives. Because as Jonah was treading water, waiting to be swallowed by a huge fish, he left behind a ship full of passionate worshippers who went from praying to their gods to actually making sacrifices and commitments to the one true God. There had been radical transformation on board the ship to Tarshish. You see, and here was a, a phrase, a thought, a truth I offered at the start of last time. I want to pick up on it again as we turn to Jonah chapters 3 and 4. There is no one beyond the reach of God's love and forgiveness or forgiveness and love. Not hardened sailors, not Jonah, but more specifically, not a bunch of people with a reputation for wickedness, cruelty, deceit, violence, and corruption, as we're about to discover this morning. What I want you to do for a moment is I want you to think of someone or a group of people who you read about this week, seen in your TV screens, or live near, who you would describe as, as pretty wicked, pretty evil. God does not want anyone to perish, not even the most twisted, perverse, sickening people that we can think of. And although we may not like that idea, although we may think at times, you know, there are some people who don't deserve to be forgiven. Who don't deserve a chance to repent. Well, the story of Jonah reminds and challenges us to think differently as we come face to face with the amazing grace of an amazing God. And so I want to pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 3. Let's read the first few verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, the contrast between the opening of this chapter and the opening of chapter 1 is stark. 
It's vast. First time round, God commands Jonah to get up and go. And what does he do? He gets up and runs. Blatant disobedience. This time as God speaks into his life once again, asks him to do the exact same thing. He gets up and goes. Total obedience. A couple of comments about that. The first is this. Here we have another great example of the God of the second chance. See, whenever we mess up and blow it and get it badly wrong, God doesn't give up on us. God has not given up on you this morning. Whatever you've done this week, whatever you haven't done this week, God has not given up on you. Jonah must have been so relieved to hear the word of the Lord for a second time. And he wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. But even though there often is a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance with God, it makes so much more sense to get up and go the first time round. Because it might just save you as it would have saved Jonah from a serious amount of heartache and hassle. If God is speaking into your life at the moment about anything, about something, then can I encourage you to go with Jonah's approach in chapter 3 rather than his approach in chapter 1. Second thing I want to say, and it kind of follows on, is that there is a very definite, important, and vital link and connection between our relationship with God and our actions. Between our actions and our relationship with God. Whenever Jonah acted all wrong, whenever he did his own thing, whenever he disobeyed, then his relationship with God began to unravel. It began to fall apart to the extent that he even tried to run away from God and he couldn't even bring himself to pray in the midst of a storm when so many other people's lives was at risk. He had disobeyed. He had acted all wrong. Relationship with God fell apart. But whenever his relationship with God was back on track, After he had prayed that prayer, that psalm-like prayer from the belly of a fish, whenever he renewed his commitment to praise God, well then, whenever the word of the Lord came to him for a second time, what did he do? He was in a better place to make a good choice and to obey. Paula Guder makes this comment, closeness to God and doing what he says goes hand in hand. If we reject one, we lose the other. Think about that. Back to the story. Jonah finally, or finally arrives in, in Nineveh. Which is, I'm not going to read all this, all this. You can follow this, this with me. But it's clearly a huge city. Because if you look at the text, it says that it would take you three days to cross it. To walk through it. But on day one, he, he shares this rather sobering message. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. It's a message of impending judgment, which seems, as we have discovered during this series, well, that's just par for the course in terms of what minor prophets are called to share. After all, Nineveh was a messed up, wicked place, and therefore, what else do you expect? What else should you expect? Whenever a city and a country and its people choose to live without reference to God, then heading down the tracks is an encounter with God's judgment. That's the way justice works in the grand scheme of a God-created universe. There are profound and eternal implications attached to the way every single one of us chooses to live. 
So Jonah announces judgment. But then the unlikely happens. Because much to Jonah's surprise and probably everyone else's who heard this story first time around, the people of Nineveh immediately listen, immediately believe, immediately repent. Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And if you glance over to the very final verse of the last chapter, you discover that this was something like 120,000 people. This is revival. Now that kind of thing doesn't usually happen. It didn't tend to then, it doesn't tend to today. Prophets in the Old Testament didn't normally receive a great welcome. They tended to get beaten up. They tended to get lured into sewers. Or at the very least, simply ignored and told, here, head back home again, will you? But here, there is a radically different and refreshing response. Even the king of Nineveh, have a look at this. He strips down and he sits on a pile of ashes. Plus, he instructs the very animals to wear clothes of mourning. That must have looked a bit weird. But this is clearly serious. Even the animals are told to wear clothes of mourning. And then the king urges everyone to pray, to cry out to God. And he insists that you people give up your evil ways, give up your violence. And who knows, he says, to quote verse 9, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This honestly is extraordinary. Especially when you think, if you've been here part of this journey, especially whenever you think that during this series we have looked at a whole bunch of people, the people of God, who couldn't do this. And here are a bunch of non-Israelites doing the very thing that the Israelites couldn't do. Repenting. Fascinating. Prophets Amos, Hosea, sent to the people of God, calling them back to God, but no. Jonah gets sent to a bunch of delinquents. And they just say, yep, we believe. We repent. Wholesale belief. Mass repentance. Now that must have caused those hearing this story for the first time to just pause. To reflect and to consider the contrast. I mean, if the people of Nineveh could repent, what is our problem? What was stopping us? It's a good question. And it remains a a relevant question. Now, you can only imagine what Jonah must have been thinking. as he he just watches this happen before his very eyes. I mean, he must have been shocked, although as we're about to discover, it was far more than shock he experienced and felt. But before we look at Jonah's response, look at God's response, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion or he relented or, here we go again, he changed his mind. 
answers on a postcard. Depending on what version of your Bible you're reading, it will say those things. He had compassion, he relented, he changed his mind. And he did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. You see, there really is no one beyond the reach of God's love and forgiveness. God's word is for all. Even the most sinful people from our perspective can apparently find restoration, reconnection and acceptance whenever they cry out to God in repentance. No matter who they are. Cry out to God in repentance. He will forgive. And despite, again, what I think about that, that is also the way it works in a God-created, grace-filled universe. Does that bother you? Be honest, it bothers me at times. certainly bothered Jonah. Look at the first verse of chapter 4. To him, this was all wrong. He is beside himself. He is seething. He is not a happy boy. Which is disturbing whenever you think that he's a prophet of God. But it's also deeply challenging because, if we're honest, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. The text actually tells us that Jonah was greatly displeased. Not only greatly displeased, he was angry. Yes, he was relieved, he was pleased, he was thankful whenever God rescued him from the belly of a fish, but he was livid whenever God saved the people of Nineveh from the depths of their depravity. Jonah wanted God to treat him one way, but he wanted God to treat other people differently. Do you ever ever go there in your thinking? Jonah did. And here his raw humanity comes to the fore because he clearly wanted bad things to happen to bad people. He wanted them to get what he thought they deserved. But look at the first five words of uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, and I love this. He prayed to the Lord. Probably through gritted teeth, but yes, he prayed to the Lord. And this is such a brilliant model because even though Jonah is angry, even though he's hacked off, he's frustrated, he turns to God in prayer. And often whenever we are angry, and especially whenever we are angry with God, praying is not easy or I'll guarantee it's not our first or our immediate response. But here Jonah takes his feelings and his negative emotions, and they are so negative, these emotions, but he takes them and he expresses them to God in prayer. And out of that experience, out of that discipline, and let me tell you folks, it is a discipline to pray when you're angry. But out of that discipline and out of that experience comes this phrase, this truth, this reality about God that keeps coming up time and time again. We encountered it at various occasions during our journey through the Essential Word series. And Roy has used it to help us fuel our praise. From Exodus, he used it. I knew you are a merciful and compassionate God, says Jonah. Slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. This has got to be one of my favorite verses in the entire scripture. I knew you're a merciful and compassionate God. You're slow to get angry. You're filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. The question is this. Was that an expression of praise or a cry of complaint? Think about it. How do you think Jonah said it? 
Was it a cry, an expression of praise or a cry of complaint? Because even though it's true, even though Jonah has prayed, he's still not in a good place to put it mildly. In fact, it's at this point that he asks God to take his life. God, I'd be better off dead. But you see, God's not allowing him to get away with that. And so God comes back at him with a question. As God and as God and Jesus often did. Spawned with questions. And God comes back at him with a question. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? And the answer is obvious. He's got absolutely no right to be angry. But rather than accept that, it seems Jonah isn't ready to face up to his own lack of mercy, his own lack of compassion, his own lack of love. He's far too challenged to answer God. And so what does he do? He walks away. Do you ever do that? Do you ever come to a realization of who God is? And you discover what God is actually like as you engage with his word. And then you find yourself challenged by your own attitude and your own behavior, which is so unlike God. Because God is merciful and God is compassionate and God is full of love and I am not. But rather than confess that and rather than deal with it and rather than accept that, I walk away from a moment's challenge and I ignore the heart-searching question that demands an answer. Is it right, David, for you to be like that? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry, silence? I don't want to talk about this, God. And so Jonah storms out of the city, which would have taken a while considering what was said about the size of it. And he finds a vantage point, and he builds a temporary shelter, and then he waits. He waits to see what's going to happen to the people of Nineveh, although I reckon he probably has a fair idea. Turns out that Jonah's makeshift shelter isn't exactly adequate given the intensity of the heat. And therefore, the text says that Jonah becomes increasingly uncomfortable. And so God graciously provides additional cover. He makes a vine or a plant of some description grow up over Jonah. And according to verse 6, Jonah is, look at this, very happy. It's the only time in the entire episode he's happy. But not for long. Because having sent a whale into Jonah's life, God now sends a worm. And this worm sets about chewing up the vine. And then the vine withers. And then the sun comes up. And then the additional shade is gone. And then Jonah's roasted to the point of almost fainting. And it says in verse 8, Jonah says in verse 8, it would have been better for me to die than to live. Now it's probably worth noting just before we move on, nobody told Jonah to go and sit in the heat of the sun. Never really thought about this before. It just struck me. Nobody told him to do that. That's his choice. He didn't, need, he didn't need to be there. But God, in his grace and his goodness, chose to make it easier for him. Well, at least for a while. 
And I wonder how often that happens to us, that we head off, that we do our own thing, we end up in depths, and then God has to step in and provide some kind of shelter and help and comfort and hope. Probably happens far more than I realize. But whenever, the temporary circum- or the, whenever there's a temporary let up in the circumstances, how do I then react? For Jonah, the anger rises again. It's, uh, it's great, I love that. And so God asks him another question. It's very similar to the last one, only slightly different. Is it right for you to be angry about the vine? And this time, Jonah does answer. There's no silence this time. There's no walking away. He does answer. He says, you better believe it, God. I am am so angry. I wish I was dead. He says it again. It's a far cry from the great exclamations of prayer and praise from inside the huge fish. And then God responds to him. And as the story reaches its conclusion, we get to the heart of the matter. Because in the final two verses, God effectively says this. Listen, Jonah. This is my world. And it's inhabited by those I have created. And if you care so passionately about something as ordinary as a vine something that you have done nothing to create and if you can get so worked up about it when it doesn't quite do what you expect it to do or want it to do then should I not care far more passionately for the inhabitants of Nineveh whom I have created that's the point and okay To quote verse 11, they don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, they cannot tell right from wrong. But you know something, Jonah? I still love them. And I've still reached out to them. And I'm still willing to forgive them. Surely Jonah can see that if he feels so concerned and so sorry about the loss of one small insignificant plant then how much more does God's heart break over a city crammed full of people who are disconnected from their creator? And so the book of Jonah ends with a question. Verse 11. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And it's a question that's just left hanging. It's suspended in midair. It invites an answer, but we don't get one. How did Jonah reply? God, I want to know how Jonah replied. There's no chapter 5. Maybe that's the point. This isn't a story about Jonah. It's a story about me. It's a story about us. And so this question or aversion of it hangs in the air in our lives as much as it hangs in Jonah's. And we all know the answer to the question. Yes, God. Yes, God. You should be so concerned. As the merciful, compassionate creator God who's slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, you have the right to offer forgiveness to all. You have the right to pull back from destroying those you choose, despite how I feel about that. And despite how I feel about them. 
And although there are times and there are situations whenever we think that certain people deserve nothing but judgment, certain people deserve nothing other than punishment, even immediate destruction, because yes, they are so wicked, they are so far gone, they are so evil, they are so messed up, they are so sick. The story and the experience of Jonah reminds us that God is far more gracious and loving than we can ever imagine. And the story challenges me about my attitudes to the inhabitants of each and every city. The abusers, the exploiters, the drug dealers, the gang leaders, the terrorists, the sexually immoral, the atheists, the agnostics, the people next door. Yes, they need to reach a similar place to the people in the king of Nineveh. They need to reach a place of recognizing their need of God, their need of forgiveness. But when, and if they do, will I thank God? Or more importantly, before they do, am I willing to go and speak into their lives God-infused words of warning and hope? Am I? Or am I just going to keep my distance? The people of Nineveh didn't deserve forgiveness, but God showed compassion. There is no one beyond the reach of God's forgiveness and love. It took a whale and a worm to convince Jonah of this. What's it going to take in my life? What I want you to do just for a moment as we close. I don't know, many people know this little song. Yeah, quite a number. Soft my heart, Lord, soft my heart. From all indifference, set me apart. It's this bit here. To feel your compassion to weep with your tears. And I want you to go, kind of go back in your thinking to that person, that group of people that you thought of earlier or you imagined earlier or you pictured earlier or you've read about this week or you've seen in your TV screen. And I want you to actually make this a prayer that you would actually ask God, God, give me something of your compassion for those people. Cause my heart to break for those people the way your heart breaks. And that might require God softening our hearts.